We are continuing in our series, The Gospel of Abraham. And today, the message is titled, How Can We Trust God? As we've looked at Abraham's story these past few weeks, we've really been digging into the area of trust. And to get today, again, we're going to deal with that as we see some of the ways that Abraham doubted God. All of us struggle with doubt at times. How can we trust God? How can we be certain, how can we know for certain, that he is good, that he loves us? How do we know that he is faithful? What if the things that we're praying for take a long time, or sometimes don't happen? If you've ever wondered about trusting God and how far he would go to keep his promise, then this is the passage to read. I believe it's one of the greatest gospel passages in all the scriptures. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to unpack it in two ways. First, Abram's doubt. And second, God's answer. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for bringing us together. We thank you for your goodness and mercy that we've sung about so far this morning. Father, sometimes we doubt, sometimes we're discouraged, sometimes we wonder. And so we ask you this morning that you would reveal a bit more of yourself to us, that we might know you and trust you more. I ask that you would stir our faith this morning to uh, just reach and take hold of the promise that you've given us in Christ Jesus. Help us to believe. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Before I move any further, I should have even jotted this down in my notes, but as I look around the room, I see that there's a lot of new faces this morning. So I'm Caleb Berg. I'm one of the elders here. So there's that. So we're looking at Abram's doubt. We said at the beginning of our seven-week journey through Abram's story just a few weeks ago, Uh, And again, Abram is Abraham. Abraham is Abram. Uh, He has a name change here at some point. Uh, But we're going to see some of the high points and the low points of his life. Uh, Probably the emphasis is on the low points of his life, to be honest with you. Uh, As we look through his story, there's a lot of low points. I like this guy. Last week, Mike covered a military victory as Abram and his men rescued Lot, his nephew, who had been captured. And you might think that this high point would leave Abram really confident, right? Well, let's read the passage. We're going to be in Genesis 15 and uh, start verses 1 through 8. It'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. And if you want a Bible, um, we have some on the back bookshelf. You grab one of those real quick and you can take it with you. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, 
and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? We see here, from the context of this passage, that Abram is fearful again. He's just rescued his nephew Lot from these tribal chieftains who were at war. And maybe Abram is now feeling a little bit of fear about maybe retaliation. He's questioning, he's saying, who will protect me? And God speaks to him in a vision. God says, fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Some translations might say, I am your shield and your very great reward. Abram has nothing to fear. God is his shield. And the reward that he's been promised is very great. This reward, depending on which translation you go with, speaks of all that God has promised to give him, but that includes God's very presence with him. And so God is reminding him of these promises that he made to Abram at this point in time years ago. Years have gone by. We saw these just a few short chapters ago in chapter 12. And since then, we've just seen Abram struggle with fear over and over and over. And this pattern will continue throughout his life. Here, Abram is also doubting whether God's purposes and promises will actually come to pass. And in these eight verses that we've looked at so far, Abram asks God two questions. The first question is seen in verses two and three. O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Abram is asking, Lord, that child you promised me so many years ago, where is he? Is Eliezer, one of the servants of my household, going to inherit everything? Abram is childless, and by now he's in his 80s. His wife is in her 70s, and she's barren. Abram is asking God, how are you going to keep your promise? God's response to Abram is amazing. First of all, we should definitely take note that God doesn't strike Abram down like we might expect him to with this type of questioning. Now, he's patient with them, and he begins by pointing out that the promise isn't that Eliezer, or any person for that matter, other than Abram's very own son, will be his heir. But he wants this to solidify in Abram's mind. And he takes Abram outside, and you can almost see God putting his arm around Abram as he leads him outside and says, look at the night sky. Count the stars. God says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now the point of this isn't that the exact number of stars will be the exact number of Abraham, or Abraham, Abraham's descendants. I'm going to get them backwards. Just know we're talking about the same guy. We actually don't even know how many stars there are. God is making a point about his power. The very God who put these stars in the sky which cannot be numbered, is making this promise. 
And so how can God give this child to Abram and Sarai, who, to put it bluntly, as Paul does in Romans 4, are as good as dead? (laughs) Thank you, Paul. Well, the God who put the stars in the sky is able to do anything. And verse 6 is the key as we work through this passage. This is the key, really, I think, to this whole seven-week study of Abraham's life. Abraham, Abram, believed. This word translated believed is essentially the word amen. He trusted the word of God. He said amen to God's promises. He didn't understand how God would do it. But when God reminded Abram of his power and promises, Abram said yes. Despite what Abram could see, despite what he couldn't see, despite all appearances to the contrary, Abram said amen to God's seemingly foolish and impossible word. And it's through Abram's faith that he was counted righteous. That is to be in right standing with God. Abram had sinned, he had stumbled, and he couldn't repay his debt to God, but he believed. And by faith, he was brought into relationship with God, where there was free-flowing fellowship. Abram was accepted, and he became the friend of God, according to Isaiah 41, verse 8. And you can kind of see in this conversation, this is kind of how friends are able to talk to each other. They can ask hard questions. But how could trusting in the fulfillment of this promise enable sinful Abram to be accounted righteous before God? Well, Paul shows us that the gospel came to Abram. We looked at this verse a few weeks ago, Galatians 3.8, in the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And really the whole of Galatians 3 encourage you to look at it because we've been referencing it a good bit here, is showing that it is through Christ this promise was fulfilled and that Abram was looking forward to that promise. Though he didn't understand it all, he didn't know what it all meant, but he was looking to that promise of Christ. We find in Christ all the blessings of this promise given to Abraham. It's in him that we've come to trust and rest Abram, by faith, reached forward to that promise, just as we have reached back towards the promise fulfilled in the death of Jesus Christ. And so we rest in the promise fulfilled in Jesus. It's Christ's death and resurrection which brings us into right relationship with God, not what we have done, but what Christ has done for us. And so we must be clear on justification. There's never been two ways to be saved. The people we read about in the Old Testament were not saved because they managed to perfectly obey or keep the law when it came. And in fact, Galatians shows us that that's not even why the law came. We'll have to get to that in another series. But these people that we read about were saved because they trusted in the promise that later would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Just as you and I are saved, not because we managed to do good, but because we simply trust in the good news, Jesus Christ. And so we say amen to the promise, just as Abraham said amen, though we stand on the other side of God keeping his promise. 
Brothers and sisters, God has kept his promise in Christ. As Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. But doubt is a tricky thing. Abram believes, he trusts, and yet doubt is still present. We're learning from Abram's life the reality and the inevitability of doubt. Doubt doesn't always go away, even when you've trusted God. In verse 8 of our passage, which is likely the next day, Abram asks a second question. Essentially, he's asking, how can I know? He's trusted, he's believed. But how can I know? Amen, Lord, I believe you. I trust you. But how can I know I can trust you? How can I know for sure? God, again, is so good and gentle in dealing with our doubts. He doesn't ignore our doubt or just dismiss it as something good. Uh, We might hear that in culture today, like always be doubting, always be skeptical. He also doesn't condemn us and say, how dare you doubt me? Rather, he deals with our doubt. He confronts our doubt. And he builds our faith and trust in him based on who he is and his faithfulness. What do we do with Thomas, the one we often call Doubting Thomas. By the way, that is a terrible nickname. (laughs) God doesn't actually say that about Thomas. We do. Jesus revealed himself to Thomas. He revealed his resurrected body. He said, touch the wounds in my wrists and my feet. And that was it. Thomas believed and they moved on. Thomas was strengthened in his faith. And so doubt is not always a rejection of belief. It often holds a belief with hesitation and uncertainty. As I pointed out a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about fear, Christians can at times be driven by fear. But this doesn't mean you don't believe or that you've somehow lost your salvation. Fear is not doubt, but sometimes they are tied together. Fear and doubt are not always sinful. But being led by fear or being led by doubt can erode our joy, our peace, and can hinder our trust, though it cannot remove our faith in Christ. And the prescription for being driven by fear is to look to Christ, to remember his death and resurrection and his perfect love for us. And the same is true for our doubt, as we'll see today. Abram's doubt is not dealt with through condemnation or anger. God doesn't snuff him out. Rather, God will visibly demonstrate his faithful, covenantal love for Abram in a powerful and graphic way. And so let's look at God's answer. We see this answer to the question of how Abram and how we can know for sure that we can trust God in the next few verses. So let's read Genesis 15, 9 through 21. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, 
female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on, that, on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. A lot of ites. So the following day, after God showed Abram the stars, God made a covenant with Abram. Now, when we read this, we are more than likely a little bit lost in the details. Abram wasn't. He knew what was going on when God started instructing him. See, we're familiar with the idea of a contract. And this is a rather modern legal construct. It's a written agreement that something will take place in a specific manner, And there are legal ramifications if both parties don't uphold their end of the deal. You have a contract for your cell phone. You agreed to make monthly payments for the phone and the usage of the phone with the service provider for a specific period of time. If you don't, your service will be cut off. You might be turned over to collections. Now, if your service provider fails to provide you service, they'll be held accountable, right? (laughs) Maybe. Enough people to uh, join the class action lawsuit. We live in a written culture. Having things in writing is our way of assuaging our doubts. How can I deal with my doubts about hiring a contractor? How can I deal with my doubts about renting out some property? Well, you put it in writing. And both parties become accountable should one fail to uphold their end of the deal. But Abram lived in an oral culture. History was told around the campfire. It was a storytelling culture. And so to enter into an agreement was done so with one's word and at Abram's time in a dramatic storytelling way, which is what's happening in this passage today. So a covenant, as we're talking about, is a more ancient legal construct. Their covenants were acted out ritually, and the consequences were dramatized. And that's what we're reading about, one of the traditional ways of making a covenant. It pops up all over the Old Testament. An example of that is in Jeremiah 34, 18 through 20. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf, and I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Yikes. And so, God tells Abram to bring him a heifer, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He is told to cut the animals in half except for the birds and to lay the pieces in a parallel line. 
Abram knew what was happening and he obeyed. Now, maybe you've been wondering what all this stuff is for. Maybe you can't see it in the back, but there's a bunch of stuff up here under bags. Um, I'm going to show you. Um, Kenan, did you bring the cow? That's, that's all right. We'll make do. All right. I'm going to be moving around a good bit, and I'll probably need some help at certain points and maybe first aid. Um, since this was a visual demonstration of the agreement and its consequences, I wanted to show you what that would have kind of been like. There won't be as much blood, but I'm not guaranteeing no blood because I do have to cut something. So we've got pumpkins, right? We're going to lay some of this out. Hopefully this will work. It's not like I can ruin the carpet any further. I'm putting down plastic sheets for those who cannot see me. And if you need to stand up to kind of get a view of what's going on, that's totally okay too. Good enough. All right. So we've got a heifer. And it's rotten. <laughs> These are the pumpkins that sat outside the front door. We've got a young goat. Thank you, Mr. Goat. And we've got first aid in the back ready for me. <laughs> So Abram knew what was going on, and he started taking care of these animals, cutting them in half. We've got our, what's the next animal? Ram. It's even got a horn. <laughs> these were sacrificial animals. These were clean animals, and they were very significant to what was going on. And we've got our turtle dove and our uh, pigeon. These won't be cut. Light out, parallel line. In verse 18, it says in the ESV that the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And that's not actually literal. The Hebrew is actually to cut a covenant. Cut a covenant. You would cut an animal in half, and the parties would walk between the pieces of these sacrificial animals. You were ritually identifying with the pieces. You were acting out the consequences, the penalty of breaking the covenant. Um, let me see. Wit, Oliver, you guys stand up for a second. One of you is going to be Abram. One of you is going to be God. A lot of pressure. Uh, stand here. And just kind of slowly walk down the line through the pieces. There's blood everywhere. <laughs> there would be lots of blood everywhere. The purpose was to invoke a curse. Now, you guys have not actually entered into, into any covenant agreement. Don't worry. Those who violated the covenant would face the same fate 
as these animals. The small print. You were saying, if I do not... You guys can have a seat. Thank you. Tremendous job walking. You were saying, if I do not do all the words that I am saying today, may I, may I be like these animals. May I be cut up and cut off. May my flesh be thrown out on the desert to be the food of the birds and the beasts of the wild. You were making yourself accountable to pay the penalty for failure to fulfill your promise. It's very graphic. It's very visceral. Gets the point across. In verse 12, a darkness of dread falls upon Abram. I can't help but think of the darkness that fell upon Christ when he was crucified. In the following verses, God speaks to Abram of what will happen to his descendants. God begins by telling Abram that his descendants will sojourn in the land. Sojourn carries the idea that this land won't actually be fully inhabited by his descendants for some time. And then his descendants are going to be sent off into oppression, bondage, slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And yet God will lead them out to the land that he's promised them and then it will be theirs. He will protect his promise even when it seems to fall into the dust of Egypt. God will not keep this promise in the way that Abram would have chosen or in the time frame that Abram would prefer, but God would keep his word. And there's a reason. Verse 16 shows us, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Well, why does God wait? God is not slow to keep his promises, but he is patient. And he's giving time to sinful people to come to him. Sometimes we wonder why God waits. Second Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God works in our time and space from outside of our time and space. And so for him, time isn't an issue. He works his plans out according to his will. And as Job shows us, nothing can thwart his plan. So the sun went down, it was dark, and Abram seems, sees something strange happening. Ooh, it's bright. Now, I don't have all the <clears throat> appropriate utensils, so you just have to deal with it. He sees a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between these two pieces. Now, Wit Oliver, would you mind helping me again? Well, I need to let this burn for a second, and then we'll do it. One of you be the blazing torch. I couldn't figure out a really good way to get smoke, so we're going with incense. (laughs) But what Abram sees is a very strange thing. It's hard to interpret, but what he sees is this blazing torch and this smoking fire pot walk between the pieces. So Abram's on the sideline observing this happen. You guys can go ahead and walk through. And he sees this strange thing happen. You guys can set that down wherever you see fitting. Thank you again. 
They didn't know that they were going to be helping. Now, I think how we interpret this, we need to be careful not to speak uh, where Scripture doesn't. So I'm not going to spend time trying to you know, figure out what the smoke represented, what the fire pot represented, what the blazing torch represented. But Scripture does give us a clue. What we do know is that God's presence is symbolized here. We do know that these same two words describe the top of Mount Sinai when God descended upon it. Also, they describe the presence of God that went before Israel in the wilderness. So what has appeared? Well, it's the very emblems of God's actual glory and presence. And so this means that it was God who walked between the pieces. And there are two stunning aspects of this that we need to catch this morning. These are so important to catch. First, it's who walked through the pieces. God walked through the pieces. Why is this so stunning? Well, um, some of you may know that I desperately wanted to be an archaeologist when I grew up, so now my only chance at that is sometimes I read about archaeology. Um, Also, I'm afraid of spiders. We know from archaeology that in ancient times, the drama of cutting a covenant was used by kings and rulers when they took on vassal servants or slaves. And sometimes, sometimes, if you had a king who was good and kind, he might walk through the pieces. But even then, not often. Most kings would not. And so it was the servant alone who was making this covenant to the ruler. So the servant would walk through, taking on the promise of this curse if they should fail to serve their king. But this is God saying to Abram, you know how you can know for sure? You want to know how you can trust me? I'm walking through these pieces. And if I should fail you, then may it be so with me. If it were possible, may I be cut up. May I be cut off from my people. If I fail, and it is possible, may I be the one who dies. And so this is stunning. The second and equally stunning thing is who doesn't walk through the pieces. Abram doesn't walk through the pieces, only God. What is being said in that is that it's God who will bless Abram, and no matter if it is God who fails Abram or Abram who fails God, God will take on the curse of the punishment. And this is speaking of another day that was to come. When this did happen, when God kept his promise, when God the Son, having taken on flesh, took upon himself the curse of our sin, he promised to save us. He promised to take us out of slavery to sin. He promised to take us away from the slavery of death and of the grave. And he actually gave his own life. On the cross, Jesus was cut off, as Isaiah wrote about. Isaiah 53, 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. On the cross, he was crushed. And it was the will of the Lord. Isaiah 53, 10 through 11, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. On the cross, Jesus took the curse that we deserved. Galatians three 
13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus took on the curse of our failure and sin. He faced the same fate as the pieces. Jesus became the pieces for you and I. Sinclair Ferguson said this, Jesus took the judgment curse of God so that the blessing of God would come to those who trusted him through faith. It was a symbol and assurance to Abram that God was forging his covenant with him. But it also was a picture to Abram how God would fulfill that promise in the slaying of Jesus on the cross. When the light of the world passed through, as it were, the symbol to the reality. The symbol is saying to Abram and is giving assurance to Abram that you can trust me. You can know that I will be faithful. I prove my faithfulness in this act. And in it, I am saying that this curse of unfaithfulness will fall upon me should either party fail. This is God saying, Abram, I'm going to bless you unconditionally. Not only will I not fail, but even if you do, your failures will not stop my blessing you. And the reality says to you and I this morning, you know how you can trust the promise of God. You know how you can trust God even when you struggle with doubts. Because Jesus was cut off. He was wounded, he was crucified, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The curse of our failures and sin fell upon him. He bore it for you and me so that this blessing of Abram could come to you and me and so that we would receive the promised spirit through faith. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All the blessings of Abraham. This is good news. This is the best of news. That God was willing to go all the way to become a sacrifice to keep his promise. So how does this help us with our doubt? First, know that we will inevitably battle doubt. Life circumstances frequently tempt us to doubt God's promise and his goodness relationships, work, sickness, our children, anxiety, they all threaten to overwhelm us. Maybe more so than anything else, sin burdens our conscience. It weighs us down at times. But every other religion makes you go through the pieces. And even then, you're never really sure that it's going to work out. But the gospel is founded on what God alone has done. And we are invited to receive with the empty hands of faith and to rest in the one who was cursed for us. Brothers and sisters, Jesus became the pieces for us. So where can you go when you struggle with doubt? Where can you go when you wonder, how long, O oh Lord? Go to the God who would take the curse of the broken covenant upon himself. 
You can look at your experiences of his faithfulness, certainly that's good, but that only tells a partial story. What tells the whole of the story is the place where God demonstrated his goodness and his unconditional love for you. Jesus is the rock that you can anchor your trust in despite your fears and doubts. You can look at your experiences, but that might not always get you through in the moment. But you can look at what he did and anchor your trust in that. Remember his faithfulness, how far he went to keep his promise. Trust him despite what you see or sometimes what you don't see. Second, let this assure you, when wrestling with doubt makes you wonder what God thinks of you. How does God think of me in my doubts and my fears? Well, God doesn't remember your doubts just as he doesn't remember your sin. God doesn't identify you by your doubts or your weaknesses. We are weak. We are fearful. We struggle with doubt. But God looks at you and I and he sees his beloved. Made whole and perfect in Christ. Abraham was not remembered by his low points or his doubts, his impatience or his wavering. Certainly we think of those things. But how does God see him? Well, let's look at what the New Testament says about Abraham. Hebrews 6.15, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Is this the same guy? Romans 4, 19 through 25, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Why is God able to see Abraham that way? Why does he see all who believe in Christ that way? Because if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus... You have his perfect obedience, you have his perfect record, and you are clothed in his righteousness. That's what God sees when he looks at you. If you've believed the good news of Jesus Christ, that's how he sees you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you We thank you for preserving this for us in your word that You gave this sign of assurance to Abram. But we are even more grateful that there was a day when Jesus became these pieces for us. Father, we're so grateful that he took our place. That by every right, we should have been the ones to be cut off and cut up and spread across the desert, but Jesus did that for us. We're thankful that Jesus was crushed for our iniquities and that through his blood we are saved. Thank you for raising Jesus from the dead. 
Thank you that he's alive today. Thank you that he's seated at your right hand interceding for us. Thank you for the good news. Father, if there are any here who have not yet believed, I ask that you would just grant them the gift of faith and repentance even now. That they would trust in Jesus who became the pieces, who became the curse for them. Father, Abram, amend your promise to bring forth a son and to bless the nations of the earth from his offspring. And you are the same God who could and did bring forth your son dead from the grave alive again in glorious resurrection. And so to Christ's triumph over death, we say amen. We stand firm in the promise of God and that faith is counted to us as righteousness, not because we've done anything, but because Christ has done it all for us. And so it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen.